Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories, and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better understanding about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Ms. Verna J. Kirkness. Verna Kirkness is a Cree scholar and lifelong educator from the Fisher River Cree First Nation in Manitoba. Verna always wanted to be a teacher, and in the 1950s, she received a teacher's diploma when few Indigenous peoples had that opportunity. Since then, she has fought for the inclusion of Indigenous languages, culture, and education inside of curriculums and Canadian Indigenous education policy. She is an Associate Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia, along with holding five other honorary doctorates. She is a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of Manitoba. Verna has written and edited nine books, including her autobiography entitled Creating Space, My Life and Work in Indigenous Education. In 1959, fresh out of Teachers College, Verna was determined to teach in a residential school. Though she had never attended one, she wanted to know firsthand the experience and taught at the Bertle Indian Residential School. She returned to teach there, even though the administration at the time tried to push her out. As Education Director of the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood, now known as the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, Verna was instrumental in writing the policy papers Wabung Our Tomorrows and Indian Control of Indian Education, which in 1972 laid the groundwork for inclusion of Indigenous curriculum across Canada. In a more recent publication, Verna and Ray Barnhart wrote a paper entitled The Four Arts, respect, relevance, reciprocity, and responsibility to continue to help teachers to take action to decolonize their teaching practice. In short, Ms. Verna Kirkness has made a lasting impact on the ethics and nature of Indigenous education across Canada, and she continues to do more. Okay, hello, Verna Kirkness, and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. Glad to see you, and thank you for taking the time to do this with us. I'm uh, going to just get right into it. I'm going to ask you to probably talk a little bit about yourself, like uh, where you're from, your family background, like where you grew up and your cultural identity. Just, you know, talk a little bit about your family history, where you, your, your family background. And say, Bruna Kirkness and Disney Kaston, I'm Verna Kirkness, Verna Jane Kirkness, and I'm from the Fisher River Cree Nation in uh, the Interlake area of Manitoba. Fisher River is a small community. I suppose now it's about a thousand people, but I grew up there where we had a a store and a church and school. Uh, Of course, much has changed over the years, but that's how it was back then. I've been thinking a lot about this since you asked me to talk about my culture, my identity. And uh, something more recent has happened that uh, we hear so much about the truth that uh, when we learn the truth, we should share the truth. So my truth is that I very recently found out 
for sure. I mean, who my birth father was. I was raised by a very good father, my father that raised me. You could not have asked for a better person. So I never felt bad not knowing my birth father. But it just came up about two years ago that I was contacted by these people. And I found who my birth father was. And I I gained a sister and a brother, which meant a lot to me because I had two sisters and a brother from my, my Kirkness family. But all of them are deceased. And I actually felt very alone, you know. And uh, it's like a gift that came to me. And uh, finding out who my father was, of course, he's passed on many years ago. But it was good to know that. And I'm very good friends or brother and sister with these two people. But I, I want to read you something because that uh, this is how it touches my heart for my identity and who I am. So I'm going to read is actually almost the last paragraph of my book, you know, that you were you're referring to before uh, when we were talking. Anyway, this is this is how I feel. I said, I am first and foremost a Cree woman. It is my identity. The fact that I was born out of wedlock, have been a non-status Indian, a status Indian, a Métis, if we define that as being a mixed blood, and adopted. I've not allowed myself to be defined by any of these labels. Rather, my life has unfolded in a relatively uncomplicated way. Yes, I am a Cree woman, and I'm passionate and optimistic person. It is my hope that this effort that I'm writing about will inspire others to tell their story, because I'm sure there are other people like me and uh, it's a way to record history. So I, I just wanted to share that because I'm so happy that I still know my, my Cree language and that I am a member. But not having had recognized by the government as a status Indian growing up, it had its drawbacks. One of the drawbacks, I think, I first realized because I lived on the reserve all my life with my mother and my father, Kirkness' father. But things were happening out there like treaty time. So treaty time had come. Everybody's getting $5, but not me. And I thought, this is really strange. I don't get $5, you know. And uh, so my uncle told my mother, he said, tell them to give Verna my $5 because he was out fishing anyway. So at least I had my five dollars right. and uh, I, I did uh, get my status later on. Much later, I was I was already here in Vancouver. So it was after 1980 that I gained my status. Uh, and it's only because I had not known to apply before or even try to to get it. You know, at that time, when you're a kid, five dollars, a lot of money. So when I finally got my status, I should have asked for back pay, right? Right, right. <laughs> it still wouldn't have amounted to very much. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess I should have told you at the beginning that I am, uh, you probably know this word, and I'm soon to be 86 years old. So yeah. I have lived a, a long and very good life. Yeah. The other drawback, and it wasn't really a drawback when in retrospect, was that all of a sudden at grade eight, 
everybody was going to residential school. Like we only went up to grade eight in our school. So they were all going to residential school and I couldn't go. And, you know, at that point, I already knew I was not status, of course. So I didn't get to go there. And, you know, uh, I'll talk later about the residential school. But from people's experiences, even in my family, my uncles, my aunts and and everybody and having talking to them, I'm very fortunate that I didn't have to go, you know, to residential school. Instead, I, I went to. Toulon. Toulon was just a town about 100 miles from Winnipeg on our on our highway there, highway number seven. So that is where I went and I got help from the Women's Missionary Society. And it was just a, what they called a girl's home and a boy's home. So there was up to about, they could handle 15 in each of them. And at that time, uh, it wasn't for Indigenous people. You know, there were no high schools in all the towns, Fisher Branch, Chatfield, Poplar Field. There were Ukrainians, many Ukrainians and different nationalities living in those towns. So they're the ones that were there. So that was my first experience of being with non-Indigenous people. And I, I did find it difficult at first, but I did enjoy my time at Toulon. After all, I finished my grade 12 there. Yeah. It also meant... Not having status meant that I had to pay for all of my education myself, you know, oh. all through. I got up to my master's degree in that. But um, yeah. again, these are not really hardships for me in a way because, uh, you know, things did work out all right. Yeah. You've written several publications. You've edited a bunch of publications academic papers and books and stuff like that. And you've also written, uh, I believe, two books. One is an autobiography, I believe, called Creating Space. And the other is The Truth About Indian Students in Residential Schools. Maybe you can uh, just talk a little bit about your books or which, whichever one you want to talk about. Maybe some highlights, things that stand out in your, in your mind about one of your books. Yeah, I'll carry on a bit. I read you a little bit about creating space there about my last paragraph to do with my identity and that. And the reason I wrote this book, it was finished in 2013. It took me a long time because I was doubtful along the way whether I should be doing it or not. But I, I did write it. And you know what my purpose was, was to track education. Since I started in 1954 as a teacher, I should let me go back a little bit just for, for kicks. <laughs> no, because uh, this is what happened. I always loved education. I always wanted to learn. Uh, well, I don't really know if I wanted to learn. I think I wanted to go for recess. Uh, we happened to live right next door to the school. So I always saw the kids going out to play in that. Well, apparently, they tell me that when I was about three or four years old, I'd walk to the school and go and knock on the door and try to get to go to school. So they'd send me home again or somebody would take me home and uh, I'd do it again. And apparently I I did that several times because I, I really, you know, enjoyed school. So from then on, like I always, always wanted to be a teacher. But I never told anybody because that was ridiculous for me to think of being a teacher 
when I never saw an Indigenous and Native teacher at all, ever. You know, you'd never had one in my day, that's for sure. So I just didn't have any role models like that. So I wanted to tell this story in the book from tracking education from my experience in 1954, I started teaching. I was 18 years old. I have to explain this too, because who becomes a teacher at 18? In my day, in the 50s, they were so short of teachers, they took people out of grade 11 and 12. And I was grade 12, and I had a six-week summer course, and then I went teaching. And my first year of teaching, I had 30 kids in grade one to eight. Wow. <laughs> I, and I, I don't know how I managed that year. I do know, because you know what? I still know those some of those students that I taught in 1954, and some of them are in their 70s They well, or older. By grade ones that I had, three boys, they all turned 70 about two or three years ago. Wow. And I have met with them. I've seen them since, and we're on Facebook together with a, with a number of them. So... Uh, that was my my first, you know, teaching experience. Well, was that in Myrtle uh, or was that in Fisher River? Oh, no, no. It was in what you call an unorganized territory. It was run by the province. Uh, you know, it was not a federal school. It was a provincial school. And there were a, a, quite a number of those. Fisher Bay, I don't know if you know these places. It also had one of those. It was all... I think in those days it was meaty settlements mostly that were in unorganized territory because when I was teaching these first group of 30 kids, they never knew who they were. And we never talked about it because I didn't learn to teach that way to talk about identity or anything. But I loved them and they loved me. So, I mean, I can say that because uh, one of my former students uh, sent me a note the other day on uh, Messenger and it was a very nice fond. <laughs> I said to her, it was her birthday night or something, and I said to her in a, a messenger something about, oh, I, you, you, oh yes, you're my little girl. I said you'll always be my little girl. I said all you first, all you students in uh, Patterson School way back in '54, all my kids. And she wrote back, yes, and we love you too. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. So I, I keep in touch uh, with them. Oh, yeah, so tracking education. I, okay, that was my first school, and I, I didn't teach that long. I taught for nine years. I taught there. And then, of course, then I taught another one, an organized territory, but this one was Ukrainian children. This time I had 10 kids grade one to eight. Now, why would I be doing that? Because I was trying to make enough money to go to normal school, to teacher's college. And, you know, my first year salary was $1,600. So I was getting a payment of 152 a month. <laughs> and I, so I never saved any money that first year or the second year either. But I then learned how to take out a student loan, eh? Yeah. And that's how I, I got myself started. And it took a year there. After my year there, I told them, the, the powers that be, the vice principal of this teacher's college, that I uh, they were hiring teachers now. And I said, oh, I want to go to Fisher River to teach. And, oh, no, they didn't think it was a good idea. They said, nobody, nobody should go to their home community to teach their first year. I said, well, I've already taught two years, I said, and I I did this because I wanted to teach my own people. 
<laughs> yeah, so anyway, I got the job at Fisher River. I even had my relatives in the, in the program. Uh, it was a good two years. I Again, I'm still friends with most of them. A uh, couple of the boys I had to be tough with, but they're my friends today. <laughs> yeah. one, of, one of those boys is the father of the first medical doctor we had at Fisher River. And he's the grandfather of our first, oh no, first lawyer. The son is the lawyer. And then his first granddaughter is a, is a medical doctor. So their grandfather learned a lot from me. Just kidding. <laughs> Not really. But anyway, he's, they're a very fine family and they've done, done well. So I guess I'm just trying to still explain this book. It's just, I was tracking education, all the things from education. Then I went into, well, I won't talk about the other places. I mean, I did go to Norehouse Bertle and taught after that. And then I uh, went into counseling. One of the things yeah. I noticed when I was at Norway House was a lot of kids were dropping out. What year were you in Norway House? 61 to 64. 61 to 64. I was there in 65. You must have. Yeah. I was a young kid. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was there. I was, yeah, that was my first residential school. I was seven years old. You remember who the senior teacher was? Uh, a lady named Mrs. Coates, I think. Oh, I, I don't Mrs. know. Mrs. Crow, Mrs. Coates. Mrs. Rossville, where did you go? Oh, I went like right in Norway House. Well, that's... Uh, that's uh, Is that Rossville? That's Rossville. Like, we never yeah. really thought, talked about Rossville. And there's the church that we used to attend to right at the point. Yeah, right there. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. Yeah. That's where I taught, yeah. And that's I became it. the... the They didn't call them principals at those schools. They called them senior teachers. So yeah. I, I did become a senior teacher there. But then I noticed after that there were a lot of our students that were dropping out. So I said to Indian Affairs, I said... Isn't there some way somebody could go to Winnipeg and look after these students, you know, and see? see. So anyway, I did that. I, um, uh, I mean, they did allow me to go, and I, I didn't even know there was such a term as a guidance counselor. So I became a guidance counselor in Winnipeg, and there was already a guidance counselor program, and the only person in it was Jack Whitty. He was the only counselor there. So I, that's what I did for the few years there. And yeah. I went on to work for Frontier School Division. And uh, in that one, I was a supervisor of teachers. You know what I always say, Gordon, if I was a man, they would have called me a superintendent because I was in charge of 200 schools. Wow. <laughs> 200 teachers. Yeah. Really? So, oh, that's an amazing achievement. At yeah. that time, well, you know, the next year they hired two men to help me. So then we each had about sixty-five teachers. But that first year, and of course there was Grand Rapids and uh, Waboden and Norway House at North School and South School. Remember those provincial schools? This yeah. was a provincial. Cranberry Portage. Yeah, Cranberry Portage, and uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you were one of the uh, first Indigenous teachers in Canada when you first started your career. <laughs> Describe what it was like being an Indigenous person working in in education field. I didn't really think anything of it, except that I did know there were only about, I don't know whose stats they were, but about 20 Indigenous teachers in all of Canada. 
at that point. And uh, I know that Florence Spence Wilson became, you know, she started probably around the same time as I did, but I don't know really of many others in, in Manitoba. Um, You know, we never had conferences like we do today or have done in the last many years. Uh, We had no way of being in touch with each other. So I think we just all went on our own way. And uh, the thing about being a teacher in those days, you never got anything on Indigenous studies, of course. I never even had an Indigenous professor, of course, you know, when I was uh, at uh, Teachers College or even in university later on. You weren't allowed to talk about Indigenous people? Um, You know, I'll tell you what, you get brainwashed in these uh, institutions. You know, you you just go by what they tell you you should be knowing. And uh, I wasn't yet so conscious of, uh, uh, at that time at normal school, of uh, of in being indigenous and uh, indigenous cultures and everything. I was just being a teacher and I was just being as, as good a teacher as I could be, you know, yeah. and I, and I enjoyed being with indigenous students. And I know that uh, one of the students at Norway house was still a friend of mine, Merle, she was on CBC in Winnipeg. And uh, she said, she really had a hard time at uh, boarding school. And she said, only one time that I liked it or something like that, she said, uh, I was in this class and uh, it was uh, Verna Kirkness was her name. She said, a teacher. And she said, and we weren't allowed, of course, in the whole school to talk Cree, you know, in our dorms or anywhere. She said, a girl and I were chatting in Cree and Verna came up to us and she started talking to us in Cree as well. She said, I'll always remember that. That was uh, was so good. You know, she I mean, I would never follow that policy, of course, uh, of only speaking English. I mean, people want to speak their language in the school. They they certainly were good. So you received numerous awards and honorary degrees over the years. Which of these has meant the most to you? Well, and you got like five honorary doctorates from five universities? <laughs> yes, I did. Order yeah, of Canada? Six, Order six. of Manitoba? Six. <laughs> six. Holy moly. Well, at Fisher River, there's a place called the Verna J. Kirkness Institute of Higher Learning. And I think that was in 2002 that they asked me if they could use my name on that Institute of Higher Learning, they call it. And, you know, they've trained teachers and nurses and uh, so many things, carpenters and, you know, vocational things. Yeah. And recently I heard from them and they're graduating about, I don't know the exact number, about 20 people from the reserve who have received both their Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Education degrees right on the reserve. Wow. Said something, and I, they want me to go and speak to them at their grad this year. Well, I mean, that's go. a real accomplishment. So they've done a lot of things there. And I'll tell you, the funny thing is they contacted me this year from there and said, we want to change their signage, like you know, how to write it there. And they said, we'd like to use a picture of you. And, they, I, <laughs> and so that was fine. But then they sent me a mock-up of the picture. 
And here's the signage, you know, Bird J. Kirkness Institute of Higher Learning, uh, Fisher River Cree Nation on this side. And there's this picture of me, large as life. I contacted them and I said, oh, my goodness. I said, the signage is very nice. I said, but my picture is way too big. <laughs> and they said, well, we want people to see it from the road. Yeah, <laughs> you know what's like on the reserve. <laughs> See it from the road about I know yeah. how many yards away, but a couple right. of miles away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was uh, one, and um, I had them written down here. Oh yes, yeah, so here it is. I got the National Aboriginal Achievement Award when they were first awarded in 1994 for education, and yeah. that, that meant a lot to me. I think and I remember. Then, I remember seeing you that time. Oh, Going yeah. up to get your word, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And then uh, in 1990, I'm actually quite uh, quite proud of this. I was the Canadian Educator of the Year. And wow. I was uh, selected by Canadian Youth Organization uh, all across Canada. I, I think they had another name. But we had, uh, there were at least two Indigenous students from UBC on there. And the process was that people nominated, you know, the educator from their all across Canada. And I didn't know until I went to the award ceremony in Montreal that I was selected as the Canadian Educator of the Year. So I was quite proud of that. And, you know, maybe I should have said this first, Gordon, that Tom, I, I got quite a number of eagle feathers along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes at a conference, you know, yeah. someone come and give me an eagle feather. Pretty high honor. And so I treasure those eagle feathers. And I'm in the process now because of my age and that of uh, of passing these on to others that are, I feel, are working hard and, and just feel like that they deserve to be recognized, you know. Yeah. So I've, I've been I've been working on that. And my my cousin, who is very a traditional my cousin's son in uh, Manitoba's working with me on that, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, uh, there were, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm really happy with, uh, you know, you, you can't help but feel happy to be honored with, I've uh, got the order of Canada, the order of Manitoba. Yeah. You know, and uh, so I, I just can say I appreciate it and thank thankful for people's kindness yeah okay where did you receive your honorary doctorates from you said six yeah uh well start from this side maybe or how could i start ubc university of manitoba oh it's in john's university in manitoba as well in uh Nova, new brunswick saskatchewan hmm? saskatchewan? saskatchewan no nothing from saskatchewan Ontario, I've got OISE from there, the Ontario issued of, you know, but that wasn't honorary doctorate, that was another honor. And my first one came from Memorial University in uh, Newfoundland. Yes. And I have one from New Brunswick, I'm just trying to think of the name of the, of the, uh, of that uh, university. That's terrible. Sorry. Sorry if anybody from there is listening <laughs> when you look at the podcast. Yeah, I, I just slipped my mind, but I don't know how many I named there. Yeah, that's about five or six there. Yeah. Yeah. 
to six. Well, that's quite an achievement. That's a, I mean, to receive one doctorate is quite an achievement. Yeah. And uh, to receive six is remarkable. You know, like you really had done a lot of good in your in your life as a as an educator. So you very well deserve to have received the recognition for your work. Mm. From the years that you started your career in the education field till today, what do you see the most significant impacts on Indigenous people has been over the years of your career? I see a lot of change. I see going from zero to where we are today. For example, going from 20 teachers to thousands of teachers, going from nobody with PhDs to many with PhDs. People are clamoring for them for presidents of universities and, and all that, you know. I'm just so proud of the, the advances that uh, people are making. And I, I see all the way along that each generation is adding more. There's always more people. There's more of us. And we have to tackle everything from health and economic development and every aspect. You know, we have to try to prepare our people. I always say if we're really going to be independent and on our own, we, we do have to have expertise in, in all of these areas. So, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I spent my later years uh, promoting access and support at uh, higher ed, both there and um I had something to do with the University College of the North being formed in uh, Manitoba, which I'm, I'm very, very happy about that it's time that they had a university there. Chiefs had been calling for it for years, and I had the privilege of doing a study throughout the North, or, or not a study so much as a, a visit to all the communities to talk about the possibilities of this uh, university and what would they like to see and I was very pleased that that report and uh, subsequent work done by Don Robertson, anyway, it was approved and the University College of the North started. So, you know, there's a lot more happening today in curriculum. I mean, I worked as a curriculum consultant, by the way, too, for the Manitoba Department of Ed, where I concentrated on language and I, I should tell you this because this is important uh, about language. When I was the, as I said, Indian Affairs prohibited speaking the language in the schools. But when I went to the province, Indian Affairs always said we follow provincial what the provinces wanted to do. So I struck on this idea to have uh, pilot projects where in those days, now this is uh, 19. 70 or 69 or 68, something like that. A lot of the children in the North were still speaking their language, which you must know about. You know, there were, yeah. in fact, there are a lot of them coming to school. They didn't know English at all right. still in that time. So I started this pilot projects in uh, seven schools, I think, across the, mostly across the North. And uh, where they were, They'd start in the indigenous language, and we got the four-year-olds in and the five-year-olds, and right up to grade three. But what we did was progressively introduce English as a second language, you know. So, I mean, we had a lot of work to do. We prepared readers. I remember once we had about 30, 40 readers all prepared, 
and all in uh, in Cree, and they were in uh, Roman orthography, not syllabics. We we didn't know which one to use. We used the Roman orthography. And you know, those kids, when they read those things, they were finished with them in about a week. <laughs> no, I mean, very quickly, because they, they knew what they were reading. You know, they understood the, the concept and the content. And the, you know, it was all about their story, you see? Was it like, a, it, it's Cree in, written in Roman orthography? Uh, well, you, we, we made it in Roman orthography, you know, just yeah. in English yeah. letters, see? Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, even some of them were more difficult. We have sounds that they don't have in English, but we improvised a bit. And, yeah, uh, yeah and we, we did do that. But that was, uh, I think that was really uh, a great thing. And the other thing that we did was, uh, oh, yes, we, that went on. You know, Cross Lake had that program going for 12 years I don't know if you know Rebecca Ross, but Rebecca was the last director of that. And, and the rest kind of fell by the wayside al along the way. And it was very difficult. First of all, it also prompted us getting teachers. We had teacher aides that were doing the work. And so that was another thing. We tried to get them going to um, Brandon University. And we introduced the PENT course uh, program for the education of uh, Native teachers. And so what they would do is they'd work all year in the school. And then in May, June and July, I think they would spend at the university. And, you know, somebody, we were, first of all, you could have a Bachelor of Pedagogy then. And that would be for teaching three years. And a lot of people said, oh, they'll never stick it out. Well, I'll tell you this. Many of them today have even master's degrees, <laughs> you know, I mean, followed on. They got their BEDs and so on. They, they yeah. stuck there. And they, they were really needed in the schools. So that was one impetus for that. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, in the 70s, I think, they started developing teaching programs on reserve. A lot of Indigenous teachers were very successful in achieving their Bachelor of Education yeah. because they were at home, as opposed to having to leave home, which was a challenge and very difficult for, for many Indigenous people trying to get a higher education. Yeah. And today you see, you know, there's a lot of Indigenous people teaching in their home communities as a result of those programs yeah. that, that came out. Right now, I guess the Cree languages or Indigenous languages is a big issue right now across the country and trying to revitalize languages. You know, people have lost their languages in many communities across Canada. How do you feel about this area of education? And um, I, mean, I don't know how we came to this point where it's, you know, many languages are are being lost. And, uh, and I know Indigenous communities across Canada are making efforts to revitalize their Indigenous languages. What's your feeling on this? I worked on that for a long time, even after retirement. I worked on it. Uh, I'm trying to think what year that was, but I did uh, work for the... David Crombie was the Minister of Indian Affairs that time, and I, I did a study. Uh, the question was, uh, what did they call it? Uh, they had a heritage center for non-Indigenous people, and we thought maybe having a one for Indigenous people would be good. So the question was, do they want a heritage center or not? So I took leave from UBC to do that. I, I only took a few months. I can't remember how long. Went across the country and talked to people and found that 
they didn't want a heritage center, which would be a building because they didn't know where the building would go. And so they said, but we want money to do our own language work, you know, because I found in BC, they were doing different things. They're doing different things everywhere, but they knew and that's a local initiative, which I, I always say is a wonderful thing. So they don't all have to be the same. They have different approaches. So I don't know if you know Cam Mackey. He was once deputy minister of Indian Affairs, but uh, he was kind of a maverick and he didn't stay there long because he, he was more like us. He was a very thoughtful and uh, understanding of indigenous people. So he helped me to do the analysis afterwards of this uh, of the study. And we put together a proposal, Gordon, and we submitted that for $100 million, that would be, geez, maybe 82 or something like that. And David Crombie was ready to do that, but it had to pass through the Indigenous organization, the head one, you know, in Ottawa. And it lingered there too long. And all of a sudden, there was a snap election and that whole thing was lost. But that's a way back in 82 now. Now people are still wanting the money for to do language work, you know. Yeah. And so I then I even wrote a book. I have a, one of my books is Aboriginal Languages, just to show the efforts that were made along the along the way. Some of my own personal work right from the beginning. It's just because I'm so happy knowing my language, thanks to my grandmother, that I I know that it is important for us to do that. So later on, I also did work with the National Cultural Education Centers, again, with similar kind of report where I, I looked at a lot of legislation around the world and things like that. And again, somewhere I never really knew what happened, got bogged down in the, in the red tape, you know, somewhere. Yeah. But I, I guess all I'm saying is that I, you know, one, one time I was saying by 2020, this was a dream I had. And I was, I did a book launch in Nepal and some uh, indigenous speakers were there. And I said um, that, you know, we sh- should call it Vision 2020. And, and by 2020, we should have all our people, all our children, everybody knowing the Cree, knowing language. Cree, I was talking about that point, you know, because I was among the Crees, of course. And uh, they were all in favor of it. That would be a very good idea. But you know how I saw that working? I thought that the North had to teach the South. It's the Southern Reserves, the Cree, well, Fisher River is the most southerly Cree place. So, you know, I uh, felt that, um, that, you know, they they should help the other, the reserves that were not as good because there was such good fluency in uh, Pasquayak and some of those, you know, Split Lake and where you come from, you know, all of those places. Where are you from, by the way? <laughs> is it Split Lake? Where is it? It's Split Lake, yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought so, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I finally gave up because I, you know, I mean, there's some things I've, I've given up on in a way, but yeah. I have a very, very, very strong feeling about languages. And I've seen all the studies, you know, every time Indian Affairs said, we're going to give a bunch of money for languages, they put a task force together. And that's as far as it would get, you know, never, ever materialized into anything. So it's been 
I, I just take it with a grain of salt when I hear the government say, and I don't really know what this indigenous language bill is that they have now and how much is being doled out now to the communities to help them, you know. Yeah. Some universities are doing it as well now or trying to, you know, incorporate. I took a lot of uh, my lessons from the Maori people because I visited them quite often and they totally revived their language. But they started with their babies, you know. Yeah. That's uh, just from, they used to call it from birth to death. Yeah. yeah. They worked on it. Mari, the, yeah. Mari is in New Zealand? Yeah. 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 I went there many times. I, I, and I took a lot of people from here to see what they were doing, you know, to follow what they were doing. There's a school in Chase here that that has done that. And one of the teachers that I uh, had taken over there, she her own child went through right through in the, all the way through to grade 12. So, yeah. yeah. So, yes, I mean, uh, 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 I guess that, <laughs> that tells you that uh, yeah. I do really value our languages that I fear that, you know, so much is being lost, but there's many efforts being made now. So yeah. let's hope. Yeah. We're working on a language project right now. We're just starting actually. And, uh, we may be calling upon on you again to uh, give us some advice. <laughs> well, I'll give it another shot as long as I'm on my feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I got one more question, I guess, uh, for you. And uh, I think you touched upon it at the beginning, and it's about reconciliation. Uh, you know, we're trying to make Canada a better country. We're trying to come to some truth and, and reconciliation. Uh you know, amongst us Canadians as a whole and uh, trying to make our country better. What do you think about the term reconciliation and how can we make this country a better country to live in for all Canadians? Uh, yeah. Reconciliation, I mean, it's a two-way street. And I still am not convinced that it's a two-way street that's happening, you know. I think we're our people are doing a lot to try to provide the kind of uh, knowledge and about our history and about everything, so that uh, if we want to think that part of uh, racism and that occurs in our in society is based on the fact that they don't know our history, which we didn't even know ourselves because we were taught that. So. I'll tell you about something that I uh, wrote here. There's a, an article that's been used over and over and over again by uh, university scholars and that. Uh, and it was the article called The Four R's. You might want to read it sometime by Dr. Uh, Ray Barnhart from uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. So I still think these are the fundamental parts of reconciliation. I mean, they deal with respect, relevance, reciprocity, responsibility. You know, what we have to give first, what we have to do on both sides is respect. And when we see the news and all the things that are happening, you know, the respect is not there for our people in even among the uh, workers, whether they're in the hospital or in the police force or wherever or on the street. So we need to work towards respect. And the people, settlers, I guess we'll say, 
I see a lot happening, though, um, I have to say, Gordon, I'm so pleased with how the TRC has triggered so much more thought and so much more commitment lately in the last few years. And uh, so I see that we need to have respect and they have to respect our territories. I just read in a newspaper where uh, New Brunswick Premier has forbidden people to acknowledge the territory, the indigenous territory when they're speaking, you know, is because they're having a battle royal there because actually all of New Brunswick is pretty much unceded territory, you know, so that's uh, it's something. So they need to respect the things. And I think, I like to think it's coming. Uh, it may be slow, but I, I think the more they see of what we can do, you know, we, we can do things like, there. I mean, our people know climate change. They know how to prevent these forest fires. They know how to do the burns, you know, and they know a lot of things about the fisheries uh, that I find, I hear and see some now more and more people that are coming forward to, to uh, use the indigenous expertise in these areas. They're finally coming to it, you know, even in healthcare, you know, traditional medicine, some of them that are, I mean, so much of the other medicines are made from some of the traditional medicines that we've had. So there's a lot to learn. So gain respect and relevance, like there's relevance to their lives. We do well. They do well. You know, we need to have that happen. They need to understand about this uh, relationship. Might be another R there, but the relevance, how it affects their lives. We're not irrelevant. We're relevant <laughs> yep. to what's going on. And reciprocity is another one. We've always been learning from them. It's as if we knew nothing. Reciprocity is kind of follows what I said before. It goes the other way too. They've got to learn from us, even in the classroom, you know, sometimes uh, it would be that um, reciprocity would be needed, like they, somebody in uh, any one of the subject areas may say something that's uh, totally wrong, you know, and yeah. they'd have to be corrected. And sometimes they didn't appreciate an Indigenous point of view. They had a scholar, an Indigenous student that spoke up, you know, and said yeah. that. But there has to be give and take on both sides, reciprocity um, yeah. of, of understanding. And the final thing I, I called was responsibility. You know, where does the responsibility lie? You know, who's responsible for what has happened to our people from the time of uh, contact, you know, and the Indian Act and things like that? You know, somebody, we have, there's got to be a change in that. And I really believe they've got to be, get rid of that Indian Act. It is still there and it's still used. And I sometimes uh, I worked in Ottawa for a long time and I saw the floors and floors and floors of workers in Indian affairs. Half of them, more than half of them, I guess, didn't even ever see an Indian. You know, I'm using Indian as our term at that time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and here they are. They're all that the all the money is so much money was going there. And I think still being absorbed in the bureaucracy to put it my way. I, I think we need the respect, the relevance, reciprocity and responsibility 
in order to reach reconciliation. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Thank you very much, Berna. We've been talking to Berna Kirkness from Fisher River Cree First Nation. Berna's been an educator for many years. She's been an author for uh, some publications. Her book is titled Creating Space. And the other one is the truth about Indian students in residential schools. So if anybody's interested, you might want to Google that and find out more about what Verna's done over the years. Yeah, that, that was the truth about Indians in our textbooks. You know, yeah, I yeah. want to, can I say one more thing? Sure. Yeah, I just ahead. want to acknowledge, I'm talking about all these things that I have done. That's not really I have done. You know, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I want to say that. I didn't talk much about Indian control of Indian education and Wabang, which are cornerstones of real crux. You know, you asked about change, and I have to say this is the biggest, most impactful thing. I should have mentioned them first. But then I want to give credit to Dave Kershane, the president of the MIB, George Manuel, uh, because they were the people that really taught me, you know, taught me how to stand up to things and taught me how to, to try to make progress. And, and I, I thank the elders at uh, UBC for the things that we were able to accomplish there. I had four wonderful elders. I've always believed in that. So I just wanted to not to forget. I, I had it top most in my mind that there are many others I could mention, like my own grandfather who lived to be 104. He taught me so much about life and about, he liked to say to me, you know, Verna, your dad was stooking here when, when he was four years old, you know, I mean, to say, you know, work, yeah, do, do things. Uh, and so I thank you, Gordon, for this uh, opportunity. I, and I wish the best for the legacy of hope and uh, all the work you do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Verna. And on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, I want to thank you very much for taking this time to talk to us and about your life. And uh, we wish you the best. I hope we can have a chance to, to speak again in the future. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Remarkable, remarkable woman you are, Verna Kirkness. Hey, Gussie. Thank you. Hi. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.